Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to episode two of Deep Dive MH370, the podcast in which we try to break down the MH370 mystery into basic parts so we can try to understand from the fundamentals what happened to this plane, what could have happened, what definitely didn't happen, and try to piece together a, a solid understanding of what the reality is behind what is, you know, aviation's greatest mystery. It's important. We really, as a society, need to understand this. And I'm hoping that this podcast, you know, somehow assist in that effort. So this is episode two. Let me introduce myself again. I'm Jeff Wise. I'm an aviation journalist and science writer. And I've been covering this mystery for almost a decade now. And I'm joined today by Andy Tarnoff. Andy, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here with me today. I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher and founder of OnMilwaukee.com. In the last episode, I think we did a pretty good job of talking about how to talk about this mystery. Right. But in today's episode, we are going to talk about the first twist, the very first moment that things went from normal to strange. Right. And it happened about 40 minutes into this flight. Getting into it. Right. So for 40 minutes, this flight was normal, and then it got strange. And I think the thing that people have to understand about this is that, you know, I was thinking about this earlier today. Most aviation accidents, and I've written about a lot. I've had my pilot's license for 20 years. I've been a journalist for like yonks. And so I've covered a lot of aviation disasters and they almost always are over quickly. There's, it's like a one act show in most cases. In most, I would say most planes that crash, it's like five minutes or less from things going wrong to the plane being you know in debris on the ground. This plane accident was not like that at all. I, I shouldn't call it accident. This incident, this, whatever it was that it was, kept going. And so time and again, something weird happened. And so what we're going to try to do in the episodes to come, starting with this one, is to sort of talk about what was the twist, what was unexpected, and how can we explain it? What evidence do we have and how can we possibly explain it? So one thing that pops up again and again is that this flight did not start out strange. In fact, it started out completely normal and it became something that people thought was an accident. But the closer you look at it, the case just keeps getting weirder right. and weirder. Very true, very true. So let's get right into it. Let's start talking about this mystery. So it's Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. It's flying from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing uh, via Vietnam and it's a big Boeing 777. It takes off right after midnight. It's a clear night. It's perfectly ideal flying conditions. I mean, really ideal. I mean, there's no red flags. You know, I, I've written about a lot of cases where there was thunderstorms around or maybe, you know, other conditions. And that none of that applied here. It was like a clear, calm night. At 1 a.m. local time, the plane's about 100 kilometers beyond the coast of the Malay Peninsula, and the captain calls the air traffic controller, and he says, Good night, Malaysia 370. Malaysian 370, contact search mean 120 decimal 9. Good night. Good night, Malaysia 370. At first, I thought sounded ominous. It sounded scary, but that's a handoff. Yeah, I mean, it's ominous because we know now that those were the final words that anybody on the plane would ever utter or be heard from again. It wasn't the only thing that he'd said. He'd had some very routine communications. Some of them were like not exactly completely 
by the book, but you know, in practice, there's a certain amount of latitude that people have. Sometimes you make more calls than you need to, or you might miss a call. It's they're humans, right? But yeah, it was a very normal call. There, it's it's a call that you make when you're about to leave the airspace of one air traffic controller and you're going to enter another one. So you're saying goodbye to this human. You're going to start talking to another human in a few minutes. And that's just standard air traffic controller speak. So I think people who yeah. don't know anything about that heard that and heard, immediately heard like a suicide message. But this is what you say when you hand off. And a minute later, yeah. the plane passes to a spot that's marked on aeronautical charts and it has a code name of Igari. What does that mean? Igari, right? So it doesn't mean any, I mean, it might have some meaning like in Malay or something, but all around the world, you have these navigational waypoints that are five letter designators and they're written on the chart in capital letters. So this one is I-G-A-R-I. -I, and it's just, it's one of thousands that are all over the globe and it has no particular significance. Sometimes they have names that kind of jibe with, you know, where it's at, like if like near Orlando, there's probably a waypoint that's called Goofy or something or Mini or something. So sometimes it's relevant, sometimes it's not. But this one is a guard. Right. And they passed that. So now they've passed Malaysian airspace, which means they are no longer the responsibility of Malaysian air traffic right. control. So they're kind of in this in-between zone. Yeah. So after that, they would become the responsibility of Vietnam by Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh specifically. And what would happen after they said goodnight to the Malaysian air traffic controllers? So, I mean, an important thing to understand about MH370, this first phase of the flight is that it's happening in the middle of the night, literally the middle of the night. There's very little air traffic control. There's not as many people working in the air traffic control centers on the ground. It's like, it's the graveyard shift and they are not really being looked at that carefully. And even in the, even when they, if they were looked at carefully, they're in this kind of what, what I think my son would call a liminal space, like a place in between spaces, right? Okay. It's like they're, they've passed from here and they haven't gotten yet to there. They're going to be under the command of Ho Chi Minh. They were under the command of Kuala Lumpur. Now they're in between and there's a gap. In this specific instance, how long would that gap supposed to be? It's supposed to be three minutes max. Okay. But again, it's the middle of the night. So are people like literally playing by the book? I mean, I think a really important thing to understand, you know, when you're imagining yourself in the moment at the time, that this was a very boring, ordinary flight in the middle of the night. And no one is expecting anything weird to happen. And no one is prepared for something weird to happen. Okay. And so it's just a completely routine up until this moment flight. But six seconds after the plane crosses over Agari, poof, it disappears. That seems right. like a very short period of time. Yeah. You know, I went back and looked at the, I mean, six seconds. Yeah. It's, it's like a heartbeat practically. And so they pass through the last waypoint, boom. And what happens at six seconds? So this is what happens at six seconds the plane goes electronically dark. So if you were looking at it on the screen, you would see the like marker of it blip out. Like now there's nothing, there was something there. Now there's nothing there. It does not exist on air traffic control radars anymore, but nobody's looking at it. Nobody is, if, if it had happened, you know, 10 minutes before, well, they're already past that last waypoint in Malaysian airspace. They say goodnight. It's not Malaysia's responsibility anymore. And because the plane hasn't called Ho Chi Minh yet, it's not Ho Chi Minh's responsibility either. They're in kind of no man's land, right? But the primary radar 
or the radio anyway, is not the only way that the plane stays on, pardon the pun, the radio. No, exactly. I mean, that's a really important point. So there's a secondary radar, primary radar, and a bunch of things that I don't totally understand that maybe you could explain to the listeners. Yeah, I think that's a good thing we should do right now. There's all these different ways that a plane in normal operation is connected to the outside world. And they have existed historically, you know, for various periods of time and, and they exist for different reasons, but let's just really quickly run through them. You have what is called a transponder or secondary radar. Let's talk about primary radar. Okay. So what happens is we're all familiar with the idea of like from World War II movie, movies of like, you know, you're looking at a screen, there's like this sort of line going around. Yeah, little blips. Little blips. Yeah. So what's, what happens yeah. when that's going on is a big antenna is sending out a beam of energy like a flashlight. It's the same frequency as like a microwave oven. So you can't see it, but the electronics can detect it. And, you know, it, a, a plane is metal. It reflects that kind of light just as it reflects, you know, visible light. And it comes back and the antenna detects it. So that's primary radar. Now that is active radar. It's sending out a signal and it's the signal is getting reflected back and it's detecting it. So the plane doesn't have to do anything. It will be picked up by this primary radar. Now, secondary radar, as the name implies, is kind of like a, a secondary version of that. And what that happens with that is that the signal goes out, it hits the plane, and then the plane transmits as a result of that kind of stimulus. It sends out a little radio signal saying, I'm here. This is my code that, that tells you who I am, a little numeric code. This is my altitude. And it might tell you some other things too, but it's like a very simple amount of information that basically just- So it's kind of like active and passive. Radar, yeah, like exactly. One is... one is active, one is passive. Okay. okay. And I think it's important to understand that okay. the passive one is actually much more useful to air traffic control because it tells you what altitude this person is, where they are and who they are. And so it really tells you like what's going on. Whereas the other one, you just see a blip. It doesn't tell you- who this person is. It's very not, it's not that useful. But then there are other ones too. There's other ways that the plane is keeping in contact. One of them is a system called ACARS. And this is kind of an automatic system that sends signals on a kind of periodic basis. And it might send like, it might tell the airline how much fuel is on board, where the plane is. It might send some text messages if the captain's wife wants to say, oh, don't forget, it's our anniversary tonight, they, she can send that through ACARS and that can come up. There's another thing that's more recent, it's more modern, it's called ADSB, And this is a system that in recent years has become mandatory in the United States. But back in 2014, it was sort of periodically implemented around the world. And it was another way, it was sort of similar to secondary radar, which is a system that basically sends information about where the plane is and what it's doing to the ground. And there's also radio, right? You can just call up and say, hi, this is who I am. Here's my call sign and I'm doing this. So basically when captain, the captain of the plane, Zahari Ahmed Shah, had made that final transmission, he said, good night, Malaysia MA370. That was, he was using just normal radio, like people have been using for over hundred years, just to say, this is what's going on with me. And in this case, I'm leaving your airspace, so good night. So all of these systems are electronic. They are turned on, they run off of power generated by the plane, and they send basically radar frequency signals out into the air, out into space, and they're received on the ground. 
Sometimes they go through satellites. Sometimes they just go through the air. Sometimes they go to a ground station, which then sends it, you know, through cables to, to wherever it's going. But the point remains that there's multiple redundant systems, all of which are exist in order so that everyone can know where everyone else is. All of this is primarily intended so that planes won't run into each other. That's what they're primarily designed to avoid. Not to sure. keep track of them, not to make sure they're behaving, you know, not to make sure they don't go missing, but to make sure they don't run into each other. So that was the, that's the main job of air traffic control. You know, there's secondary missions like to help people not run into mountains, to help people not fly into thunderstorms, things like this. Before we go any further, can a pilot turn off all of these tracking devices? There's various ways to turn things off. And some of them are as simple as an on-off switch. Um, some of them are much more complicated as we'll get into soon. But for the most part, um, what happened next is that all of these things got turned off, all of them. Including the one that reflects off the plane? Okay, so the passive one isn't a system that you can turn off. That's that, right. and of course that that remains you know in effect essentially because all the power for that is coming from the ground. So you know radar primary radar reflects off clouds, it reflects off birds, it reflects off planes. The plane is like doesn't have any say so. Everything else, which involves the plane transmitting radio frequency signals, that turned off six seconds after the plane. I'll try not to foreshadow too much. <laughs> I mean, I think people know that like basically. Spoiler alert, the plane, you know, does vanish. Right, but, right. Or else we wouldn't have a podcast to talk about. Right. But it is crucial to understand that nobody on the ground had any idea that the plane had disappeared at this point because nobody was paying attention. And you said the air traffic controllers in Malaysia were sleeping. Right. So the protocol, the official protocol was that three minutes later, the air traffic controller in the next segment was supposed to say, hey, where's this plane? And, and like contact Malaysia or start asking questions. It was the middle of the night. And as I said, like nobody was really at the on the top of their game. Nobody was expecting anything weird. Nothing like this had ever happened before. So certainly, you know, it just wasn't on people's proverbial radar screen. Nobody in Ho Chi Minh three minutes later asked where the plane was. It was, it took like significantly longer. It took significantly longer. It was like 15 minutes. I don't, I don't even remember, but it was like it was a lot longer than it was supposed to be. And in the aftermath, of course, people were looking at all this with great detail because, you know, spoiler alert, the plane never showed up in Beijing. This is not the first time that a plane has ever disappeared between waypoints. No, that's a really good point. This happened with Air France 447. Right. So in 2009, Air France 447 disappeared under circumstances that are kind of kind of eerily or uncannily similar. In the sense that this plane had took it took off, it was a transatlantic flight. It was a red eye, and it left the area where it was covered by the radar in Brazil, and it was headed out over the open ocean, and it crashed. You know, not too long after leaving the coast, actually, but it was beyond the range of South America. It hadn't yet reached the next set of air traffic controllers who could actually keep track of it, who were in Africa. And so for hours, people just assumed that everything was fine because they had no reason not to believe that. But it's different because the Atlantic is yeah. much larger than the South China Sea. Right. So in that case, where we now know kind of exactly what happened, and it's a whole weird story in, its, in itself, but it was kind of mechanical failure combined with crew failure, human error. But there was a gap that was several hours long. Here we have a gap that's like, minutes long just a few minutes long but as it had but when the plane like six seconds after the plane entered this sort of you know this numinous area in between it did vanish and so 
it was either coincidence or somebody was like, okay, I'm going to wait until I'm in this area where no one's looking at me and I'm going to do something. But I think let, let's keep for the purpose of, of this episode too of our podcast. I like, let's try to keep it to like what was known that first day. Cause as we said, the plane never showed up in Beijing. And even long before it didn't show up in Beijing, people were like, the Ho Chi Minh controllers were like, okay, this plane should not, should be here and it's not. So what do you do in that circumstance? Well, you call Malaysia and you say, hey guys, didn't you, weren't you sending a plane our way? What happened? And Malaysia's like, yeah, it was there. And what? And so they had to wake up their supervisor and they started to call around and they, and they, they had to call the airline and then the airline was making calls. They try to call the plane, but nobody answers at the plane. And so it's gradually dawning on people as the hours take by. The more time that goes by, the more they're kind of, you can just imagine their stomachs kind of just sinking. Right. And news was getting out. Here's Anderson Cooper on CNN, a network that featured you, Jeff, prominently in the wake of this disappearance, telling his primetime viewers in the U.S. that the plane has gone missing. He was interviewing Fuad Sharuji, the vice president of operation control for Malaysia Airlines. And you could tell that this poor guy had no idea what happened to MH370. Welcome back. We continue to follow breaking news out of the Far East. A Boeing 777 is missing. They lost contact. Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 with 239 people on board vanished from radio and radar contact about two hours into its flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. We do not know what has happened to this airline. Search and rescue operations, we're told, are now underway. Yes, it's bad. It's, this is bad. The, the, the longer, the more, it's like your kid not coming home at, at late at night, you know, like the longer, it's 2 a.m. Where's my kid? It's 3 a.m. Now I'm freaking out, you know? So it was, it was that kind of mentality. So let's talk about some of the things, the, the obvious things that people thought maybe happened to this plane. Uh, first of all, the pilot knew when he was in between waypoints. Well, right. So what could have caused, so, so basically, at dawn on March 8th, what do they know? All they know is that the plane was supposed to fly to Beijing. It didn't. Last time it was seen, it was it had just left Malaysian airspace. It never arrived in Ho Chi Minh airspace. And that's it. That's all they knew. It was supposed to be there and it wasn't. So what happened? At the very least, it appears that Malaysia Airlines was being honest that it didn't have any knowledge that there was some sort of mayday call or anything like that. Here's a clip from CBS News on the evening of March 8th. Malaysia Airlines CEO also said that there was no indication that the pilots had sent a distress signal, suggesting that whatever happened to the airplane happened quickly. It, so in the case of Air France 447, they found that there were these electronic signals that had been, we'd mentioned earlier, this ACAR system, which is sort of an automatic communication system that kind of the, the plane can automatically update uh, the operation center. Like this is the maintenance, this is how much fuel we have on board. And they found these automatic messages that report that were reporting like some problems. There was a problem with the pitot tube. There's a problem with various other systems. And they, from those emergency messages, they were able to kind of determine where it had probably come into trouble. In the case of MH370, there were no such messages. All they, the, all they knew was the last point of contact was after Igari. Six seconds after Igari, that's the last we heard of it. And so as an air accident investigator, what are you thinking? What's your top guess? And your top guess is that something like when it was, in the case of Air France 447, really soon after that last message, it went into a spiral and it crashed into the ocean. That seems logical. Now, why that happened took two years to figure out. But like 
the the first guess you would have is that something bad happened and the plane crashed. Yeah, so it could have exploded. It could have had a massive electrical fire. Could have crashed in the ocean. Right. Uh, could have been pilot suicide. Those are the average things that could down a plane. All the bad things that could have happened. The guess is that it's crashed there. It's probably like based on historical record, the plane is probably within five miles of that last contact. Because usually you're flying, you're, you're six miles above the earth or more, and you are in a realm where if you were put into that atmosphere, you would, you'd be unconscious in less than a minute. It's a very hostile environment. You know, you're going hundreds of miles an hour, you're going a significant fraction of the speed of sound. It, it's, it will kill you very quickly. And so Air France 447 in that case was on the, was hit the water and killed everyone on board within five minutes. And so, and it was found relatively close to that point of last communication. And so, yeah, on the morning of March 8th, 2014, that was looking like what probably this was about. And I remember, because I had written a lot about Air France 447. So people reached out to me and were like, do you want to cover this for us? And I was like, I guess it, I remember thinking this seems like a really normal, it seems like a really normal thing. Sad and tragic, but it didn't seem particularly unusual to you as someone who had been writing about airplane crashes. Forever. At that point, no. At that point, nothing really seemed that unusual about it. But there was this strange detail, this timing that stood out to you. So what stood out? Yeah. When did that happen and what stood out to you? I can't remember now when I realized that it was such a short amount of time. And it was a couple of days later when other strange things seemed to happen. And we realized that even though it looked initially like a very normal accident, it was not a very normal accident. In fact, it was very abnormal. I think we should talk about that in the next episode. If this was a typical plane crash over the South China Sea and it crashed where people thought it crashed, then it should have been pretty easy to find the debris. Exactly. No, that's a really great point, Andy. It's So in the case of, of Air France 447, it was really out in the middle of the ocean. And so it took a long time to get out there. They had to send ships out there. Even for the planes to fly out there that were searching for it, it took a long time. This was right off the coast of Malaysia. It was very near Thailand. It was very near Vietnam. It, like it, it's a, The South China Sea is just not that big. And so they were able to send multiple ships out really quickly, send out planes. And sure enough, like they saw debris floating. They saw oil slicks. They're like, oh, they saw the things that you would expect to see if a plane crash. Yeah, there was a lot of early talk about that. Here's a clip from Time Magazine, the morning of March 8th. The closest thing investigators have to a clue is traces of oil suspected to be from the missing jetliner. A Vietnamese plane spotted the oil slicks while flying over a search area in the South China Sea. Nothing else has been found. But when they looked closer, they found that it was like oil from a ship and the debris was just like somebody's floating kiddie pool or something. It was it all turned out not to pan out. So but look, a giant plane crashes, you find some sort of debris. If you know where you're looking, it's not like there's nothing there. It usually takes a couple days. It's you, you know, the ocean is a big place and it's I think it's hard to spot things from the air. So I think if you look at historically similar cases that involve planes kind of going down suddenly over the ocean, even patches of ocean that are pretty close to land and pretty easy to search, 
It can take a while. Well, yes, but it's not going to take nine years. I mean, no, had that happened, it would have been, been a would, pretty easy case to solve. Within the first few days, certainly you would have expected pieces, human bodies, pieces of debris, et cetera, seat cushions, things that float. It would have started to turn up. Okay. And they did not, and, and their hopes were very high. Expectations were very high. I think most people expected this stuff to be found, but it wasn't. Here's a clip from one of the early Malaysian press conferences. They know the plane is missing, but they have no idea where it is or what happened to it. Ladies and gentlemen of the media, we are deeply saddened this morning with the news on MH370. Visual lines confirm that this flight, MH370, lost contact with Subang Air Traffic Control at 2.40 a.m. this morning. There has been speculation that the aircraft has landed at Nanning. We are working to verify the authenticity of the report and others. Well, that seems like a great place to pause. We're at the end of day one now, and the authorities have no idea what's going on. So this is the end of the first phase of MH370. This is where the plane has disappeared. It so far seems pretty normal, except for this one detail, which is that it just disappeared right after passing in uh, out of one some one air traffic control area and so nobody's looking at it that's the first little hint of weirdness it gets weirder a lot weirder (laughs) in our next episode episode three the case continues we look into this strange borderline impossible something happened after six seconds the rumors that are spreading and the realization that mh370 did not crash into the south China Sea after all. Yeah, it was kind of a slow burn. It was like sort of a slow dawning realization. People are like, there's rumors spreading that wait, maybe this isn't what we thought. Maybe it's more complicated than that. But you know, when you're used to things unfolding in a certain way, it can be hard to rearrange your mind and to think, oh, actually, maybe it's not that. And I think this is a kind of an ongoing dynamic with MA270 where people assume that it's one way because it's always been like this in the past. And so we have to kind of pull ourselves out of expectation and try to keep an open mind about maybe things are a little weirder than we would normally expected. We are going to deep dive into that. And we are also going to take some listener questions, which is a new thing for us. Yeah, that's a new thing for us. You and I are both kind of figuring out this podcast thing. And so I think it's good to try to experiment with different aspects of it. I think it would be fun to kind of bring in other voices. I mean, as we've said, I think in the first episode, what I would personally really like to see with this is kind of make this a way that anyone who's interested in MH370 can kind of ask their questions and get their answers and maybe add their two cents to the mystery. So that was Deep Dive MH370 Episode 2. If you're enjoying it so far, we would really appreciate it if you can rate this podcast, give it a thumbs up, all those things you're supposed to do on these podcasts that help other people find it. Yeah, and ask your questions. I I know I'm learning some things along the way. Maybe not you, but I I think we're both going to learn stuff. And I really want to, I encourage people to leave comments or to, you know, reach out to us. I think we're both pretty easy to find 
but we'll have a show page that will have contact information and a place where maybe we'll put up some resources and make it easier for you to reach us. So yeah, I, I know that people have a lot of questions and so we want to hear them. I like it because we're going somewhere with this. I hope so. But you're going to have to stick around and find out. There's some twists and turns ahead. Bit by bit. But we're going to cover every brick in the road.